Well, amen. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1 this evening. John chapter 1. Thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to be with you this evening, the opportunity to preach, and it is a real blessing. Uh, I'm excited to be part of Heartland. Been there for three years, and uh, this coming year will be our fourth year, and I'm trying to persuade them that I should get to graduate with, with the 2020 class because I feel like I have learned as much as many of the students have in my time at Heartland. It's been a real blessing and encouragement. I, I often say I wish that folks who are maybe discouraged about our, our country or our situation could just come and see the, the kind of quality young people that are coming out of our independent Baptist churches and coming to Bible colleges like Heartland and others. And just to see the quality, the genuine love for God, the spirituality, the character and I think we would, we would gain some hope for the future. Uh, it is a joy to be with you. We, I'm not going to spend much time, but there is a, a table in the foyer. There are CDs uh, of our various groups. And uh, the money that go, comes from that just goes right back into gas and meals and, and keeping the groups on the road. There's also a, something new. It's a thumb drive that has a number of uh, chapel sermons over the last 25 years as we just celebrated our 25th anniversary of Heartland being in, in Oklahoma City. And there are a number of Sam Davison sermons, Jason Gaddis sermons uh, on that, some going way back and uh, some of them uh, quite famous. And uh, so those are for sale and that would be a good investment. I, I don't remember how many sermons are on that. Does anyone? 80 sermons. And that's a good deal. And uh, so if you don't like tonight's sermon, buy that. And uh, surely one of those AD will make up for it. Uh, my wife would normally be with me uh, on tour, uh, but a year and a half ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer at age 46, and uh, it's been about a year and a half of battling that with uh, chemo and uh, then major surgery, and then she was going to start chemo for a second round and actually did the first treatment of that. And uh, then the doctors decided that uh, the chemo wasn't worth the risk, and so they, have, they canceled that, and she is considered cancer-free at this time. Uh, but unfortunately, she still has some of the re residual effects of the chemo, including difficulty in the heat. So we, probably, we thought maybe Georgia, South Carolina, Florida would not be the best idea. Uh, and so appreciate those who maybe have known about that and prayed for her. Uh, and she wanted me to say that because if my tie is crooked or if I'm, if I'm unkempt, she wants you to know it's not her fault, okay? But after 29 years of marriage, I kind of get you, I, I'm dependent on her, on her to make sure that I'm presentable at times. But anyhow, I'm so glad to be here. I want to say one more thing before we get into the message. I, I noticed in your bulletin the next Sunday is Friend Day. And that's something that's dear to my heart because I got saved on a Friend Day back in 1991. My my family was not a Christian family at that time. My dad was in the Navy, and we lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia until I was 14. <clears throat> my dad retired, and we moved out to Texas. And uh, I enrolled in high school there, and I was, though I was only 14 going into 15, I was a, just a young person, but I was well on my way to a nihilistic, meaningless, selfish self-destructive lifestyle. And uh, a teenager in high school, his name was Todd, invited me to church for about six months. 
And I told him, I'm an atheist, I'm agnostic, anything to get him to leave me alone. But he wouldn't leave me alone. He kept inviting me to church. And then in April, his church was having Friend Day. And some people criticize promotions, but I'll tell you, the only reason that I went that day is because it was Friend Day, and I was touched that he wanted me to be his friend. And so he drove out, picked me up. I couldn't drive at the time, brought me to church, sat me in the youth department, sat me in the service, let me read off of his Bible because I had no concept at all uh, of what church was like, what the Bible was. And I got saved that day, April 21st, 1991. And my wife was a bus kid at that time. She had in the same youth group. And, uh, you know, we ended up getting married and serving in ministry all these years. And so I thank God for Friend Day. And I just want to throw that out there. If, if you're afraid maybe to invite that person one more time, please invite them one more time. And you never know what God's going to do with that invitation. Amen. All right, let's get into the Bible tonight. John chapter 1 and uh, verse number 1. Very familiar passage this evening. John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice, the Word was made flesh. I want to speak to you tonight on beholding the glory of the Incarnation. Father, I pray this evening that you'd open the Scripture to our understanding. Help us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to appreciate his self-sacrifice, the glory of the fact that God became man and dwelt among us. And I pray that you please open our, the eyes of our, our minds, our hearts, to see Jesus tonight. If there's someone here that's not saved, I, I pray that today, during this service, they would understand the gospel and they'd be drawn to come to Christ as their Savior. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. There's one major theme running through John's gospel, and it's this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and if you believe upon Him, you have everlasting life. He alone can be the Savior of the world. He alone is the Savior. He alone can give you eternal life because He is the one that could die for our sins on the cross of Calvary. In the first few verses of John 1, we are taken back before the beginning. Verse 1 said again, in the beginning was the Word. So when it all began, the Word was already there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, without doing any violence to our text, can we substitute the name Jesus for the Word and have the same statement? Yes, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Is that accurate? Because Jesus is God, the Son of God, God the Son, the second person in the Blessed Trinity. And so it's important to understand this because Jesus is not just a man. 
He was not half God, half man. He, he is God himself as a man. Just as much God as though he'd never been man, just as much man as though he'd never been God. And then verse uh, 4 says, And the Word, all right, and Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus made flesh, the Word made flesh. And verse 14 is the Christmas story in the Gospel of John, all right? Now, John doesn't tell us about Joseph or Mary, he doesn't tell us about the trip to Bethlehem, doesn't tell us about the visit of the angels or the shepherd's adoration or the wise men that came within two years uh, after to visit the young child that had been born. Matthew and Luke tell us those things, but John tells us what it means. That the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word who was in the beginning... The Word by which all things were made, and for whom all things were made, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What an amazing truth. Then it says, We beheld His glory. When the Word of God, when the Word tabernacled in flesh, His glory was on display. Now think about through the Bible, when God chose to tabernacle with man, by the way, God desires to dwell with his people. And so when God chose to tabernacle with man, there was always a display of his glory attached. All right, for example, the tabernacle in the wilderness. God gave the plan to Moses, Moses constructed the tabernacle, and then God gave a display of his glory in the Shekinah glory cloud that rested upon the door of that, that tabernacle to show that this was his dwelling place and that he would be among them and they would see his glory to know that God was with them. Then we go forward to Solomon constructing the temple. And Solomon had that great dedication feast, seven years building the temple, and then they gathered Israel together to dedicate the temple to the Lord, and he prayed that great prayer, uh, Solomon's prayer, and then God manifested his glory at the temple to show that he was going to be tabernacling, that his presence would be with his people in the temple. Then we find, coming forward yet further, that when Jesus was on the earth, God manifests in the flesh that they saw his glory not in a Shekinah glory cloud around Jesus necessarily, but in his words, in his actions, in the power of God upon his life as he did miracles, as he went about doing good, as he was changing people's lives. They saw his glory and they saw that he was full of grace and truth. So the incarnation is the miracle by which God became flesh and dwelt among us. To do so, he was conceived without a human father and born of a virgin. So tonight, I want you to consider just four thoughts uh, as we behold the glory of the incarnated Savior. Notice first the glory of our scriptural Savior. The glory of our scriptural Savior. We must understand that God's plan of redemption was not a last-ditch effort thrown together during the 400 silent years because everything else had failed. Amen? 
God sending Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world was not because God tried in the garden and that didn't work, and God tried before the flood and that didn't work, and God tried with the patriarchs and that didn't work, and God tried with Moses and that didn't work, and God tried with the kingdom and that didn't work, and God tried with the the post-exile Israelites and that didn't work. So as one last-ditch effort, he thought, I'm going to send my son. No, sir, it was always God's plan from the beginning that Jesus Christ would come and be the Savior of the world. All of that pointed forward to the fact that Jesus Christ was going to come and tabernacle among men, that he might be our scriptural savior, fulfilling all of the pictures and the prophecies and the promises and the patterns concerning Jesus Christ found from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. He's our scriptural savior. He's the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the son of David. He was pictured in all the sacrifices. He was pictured on Passover. The blood on the doorpost was a representation of his blood on the cross of Calvary. He was the, uh, what was pictured in the tabernacle and every piece of furniture and every thread, every uh, bar, every base, everything that was part of the tabernacle pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. The priesthood pointed forward to our great high priest. All of this prophesied by Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Micah and Malachi and so much of the Old Testament, how he'd be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, why he would be born, what sort of ministry he would have, the kind of character that he would have, the kind of death that he would suffer, and even his resurrection and his future kingdom, all prophesied from Genesis to Malachi. I'm just pointing out that it was not a last second plan. It wasn't plan B or C, but from before the foundation of the earth, he was the lamb slain. It was God's plan. And all of that Old Testament scripture pointed forward to Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. He's our scriptural savior. In the Old Testament, you have a chorus crying out, he is coming. He is coming. John the Baptist stood on the banks of the Jordan River and says, He is here. Behold the Lamb of God. And now we we stand and say, He is coming again. Amen. He's our scriptural Savior. My oldest daughter, Elizabeth, she's hard to believe it. She's 26 now. But when she was like six or seven years old, she's always loved to put puzzles together, you know. And so I came home from work one day, and uh, she had a puzzle laid out on the kitchen table. Any of y'all like to do puzzles? All right, so she had a puzzle laid, and she hadn't done very much of it yet, just a little bit of the edge. And, and so I just see this jumble of pieces, and some of them are flipped upside down, and they're all mixed together. And, and, uh, and I'm looking at it, I can't figure out what it's, it's supposed to be. I have no idea. I just see a piece of green here, and a piece of red there, and a piece of blue here. And, and so I asked her, what, what is the puzzle going to be? And she flipped over the box lid and showed me what the puzzle, when it's put together, will look like. Amen? Well, when I read the Old Testament, and I just start in Genesis, and I go through Malachi, I see a bunch of little pieces. Amen? I see a promise here, and a promise there, and a picture here, and, and a, a, a pattern there, and a prophecy here, and, and they're all scattered throughout the Old Testament. Once I have seen Christ in the New Testament, man, I can't miss Him in the Old Testament now. Amen? Once I've seen Him in the New It's easy to find him in the old. But man, if you don't have the picture on the box, 
You may not understand what you're seeing when you read through Isaiah. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch sitting there had, had bought an expensive Isaiah scroll and had read all the way through to what we call chapter 53 today? I mean, out of 66 chapters, he's read three quarters of the way through and he's sitting there and he's reading that. And you and I read Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant and we say, that's one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of the suffering of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But he said, who is he talking about? He asked Philip, uh, does, is, this, is he speaking of himself or some other man? And Philip began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus, amen? Because Philip had seen the picture on the box. Now it's easy to put the pieces together. Aren't you glad you have a scriptural Savior that Jesus Christ fulfilled everything that God had promised concerning His Son when He was incarnate, when He became among us as the Son of God and the Son of Man. Number two, He is our sympathetic Savior. And I'd like we to, well, let's start here in John 1. Then we're going to go over to Hebrews and look at several verses together. But notice there in John 1, verse number 10, it says that he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So here's the one who made the world. Now he's in the world. And he comes to his own. Now we know who his own are. His own were the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was his, his, uh, his people the chosen people of the old, that God had chosen. And, and now he comes to his own. He comes to Israel. And not only the, the world doesn't know him, but his own don't receive him. I mean, the world, they're in ignorance. They don't, they don't know the promises concerning the Messiah. They, they didn't recognize Jesus when, he's, when he came. Those Roman soldiers that were gambling for his clothes, Pontius, they, have, they were clueless concerning the Jewish Messiah. But then he came to his own people and they did not receive him. I want you to think about this for a second. If you were in heaven, would you want to come down back to this earth? I believe it was Curtis Hudson that used to say that Jesus left heaven's noonday to come to earth's midnight. Isn't that a good statement? Now let's go over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at Hebrews 2 and then Hebrews 4. And then we are going to come back again to John 1 if you want to mark your place. But in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, all have until I find it to find it. Okay, there we go. All right. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 14. All right. The Bible says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus was not a spirit that looked like a man. You know, angels in the Bible appeared like men, but they were not flesh and blood. But Jesus did not just appear on the earth looking like a man, but he actually took upon himself flesh and blood. Took upon himself our human nature. Why? So that he might destroy Satan's work by conquering death. All right, let's look at verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, 
I think it's very easy for us to say we have no fear of death when we're not facing death. I'll be, I'll be transparent with you. My wife went in for surgery, a 13-hour surgery. I was a little scared to lose my wife. In fact, it really scared me that morning, Pastor. I was reading my devotionally, and my devotion text that morning was the death of Ezekiel's wife. I was sitting in a waiting room reading that. And I said, well, I, I know we're saved, and she's saved, and she'd go to heaven. But man, death is a fearful thing, isn't it? And uh, yet, can you imagine facing something like that as a lost person? As a lost person? And so he came to destroy death so that you and I would not have to live in the bondage and subject to the bondage of the fear of death. Verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Oh, bro, listen to this. This is an, to be a merciful and faithful high priest. One of the most beautiful truths in the Bible is the fact that Jesus Christ is my great high priest. I don't need a priest in Rome or Oklahoma City or anywhere else. I have a high priest at the right hand of the Father. Amen. And he is merciful and faithful. In Jesus' time, the high priest was neither sympathetic, nor faithful, nor merciful. The high priests in Jesus' time were corrupt. They were, uh, they were not even of the lineage of Aaron. They were not even biblical. They were political. They, they ran uh, almost like a mob-like religious racket in their city. And if you, if you uh, look at a, a map of the city of Jerusalem, you have the temple. And then over on the side, you have the, the, the palaces of the high priest and where the priests lived in this upscale. I mean, if you're the high priest and you have a palace, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> so in, in, in Jesus' time, in fact, this is something I found very fascinating. I had the privilege to go to Israel back in 2004 and again in 2010. And uh, if you've ever, ever been to Israel, you might have gone to, I believe it's the Jerusalem Hotel, and they have a, a large uh, model of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, it's as, probably as large as this platform. And you can walk all the way around it. Brother Gaddis and Mrs. Gaddis were just there, and they, they had some pictures of it. You can walk all the way around, and you can see the temple and the fortress of Atonia, and uh, where, where Gethsemane would be on the other side of the, the Kidron uh, Valley, and uh, then the, the, the housing areas, the walls. And then on one side, you see right next to the temple, you find the palace of the high priest with his own elevated walkway connecting the, the high priestly palace to the temple so that he could walk from his house to the temple without ever rubbing elbows with the, the dirty crowds down in the city streets. Can you imagine being a Jew and your high priest? The only time you might ever see him is, that, is someone on an elevated walkway. He, he, you'd be more likely to get an interview with the Pope than you would with the high priest in Jesus' time. And yet Jesus did not walk on an elevated parkway. <laughs> but he was down there among the people, shoulder to shoulder, with them, down in the dirt, <clears throat> down in the gutter, <coughs> reaching people, 
helping people with the sick, with the leprous, <coughs> excuse me, with those who are hurting, stopping at funerals, raising the dead, feeding the hungry. I mean, he, he's not up there disconnected, living in wealth, fleecing the flock, but rather the sympathetic Savior down among the people, feeling their hurts, walking where they walk, living where they live, uh, so that I can now come to him as a merciful and faithful high priest. Look at verse 18, it says, for, that, for in that he himself hath suffered to be tempted, he is able to succor or comfort them that are tempted. So consider the life of our high priest. He experienced every age of life from, uh, from birth through young adulthood. He, he suffered all the limitations of a human body. He got tired, he got weary, he got dirty, he got dusty. He sweated, he bled, he was thirsty, he was hungry. He said the birds have nests, the, uh, the, 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 the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He was poor. Why? So that he could be our sympathetic Savior. All right, now let's go to chapter 4, Hebrews 4, verse 14, and we'll see what this means to us. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When's a good time to go to God? Anytime if you're a child of God, amen? And if you're not a child of God and you want to get saved, now's a good time to come to Him and get saved. You'll find He's at it's a throne of mercy, a throne of grace, and you'd rather stand before the throne of grace than the throne of judgment to come. Amen? But I'm saved, and when I go to the throne of God in prayer, and just lifting my heart to the God of heaven, I am coming before a merciful and faithful high priest who is touched with the feeling of my infirmities. I guarantee I, every church that I've been in, if I mention our family's journey through cancer, there are a number of people throughout the room who are touched by that because they have been through the same thing. They or someone in their family, and they, they sometimes they don't, you know, they just come up and put their arm around us and, you know, while well, we're going through that ordeal, and, and you could just tell because they had been through it, they were touched with our infirmity. But we have a Savior who is not calloused or insensitive to our needs but is touched in his heart towards our infirmities. So when's a good time to bring your needs to God? Anytime. Now, we find if you need mercy, go to the throne. If you're in a time of need, you'll find grace. Every adult in this room knows life is hard. I was talking to a couple of the students um, driving the other day. We're talking about some of the things that pastors try to help people with because life is so difficult. And I said this in an old quote, and I don't know who to attribute it to, but someone has said that if pain were water, the earth would drown again as it did in the days of Noah. If pain was water, because the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. But aren't you thankful 
that you can get on your knees wherever you are. And though men in power may not care what you have to say, you have a Savior in heaven who's touched with the feeling of your infirmities, that you don't have to call His secretary and make an appointment. You can come boldly anytime and know that that Savior is sympathetic to your need and actually has the grace and the power to make a difference. And all that's because He took upon Himself the nature of man. All right, let me bring out a third point, and that is we behold the glory of our suffering Savior. And that's back in John 1 where it said, and we read this a minute ago, but it said, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Someone has called that a sacred understatement because it's not as though they politely rejected Jesus. But when they received Him not, they, they didn't just reject Him, they hated Him. And the leaders hated Him so deeply that they would settle for nothing less than to sit down and watch Him suffer on a cross and die under Roman condemnation. And so the one who created all things <coughs> came unto His own. The ones whom, the descendants of those He brought out of Egypt, the descendants of those that He gave His law, the descendants of those to whom were given the tabernacle and the uh, sacrifices and the feast days and the priesthood, those who had all the oracles and the promises and the pictures, and yet when the Son of God Himself was among them, they knew Him not. The dark shadow over the cradle in Bethlehem is the cross of Calvary. Why did Jesus come? He came unto His own, His own received Him not. That led to His death on the cross of Calvary. Jesus had to take upon Himself a body, the body of man. He became man so that He could suffer our death as our substitute. The first Adam failed. The last Adam succeeded. Amen. The first Adam brought condemnation. The last Adam brings justification. The last Adam brought sin and death into the world. The last Adam dealt with sin and death and paid the price for all mankind. In Adam, we all die, but in Christ, we shall all be made alive if we believe in Him as our personal Savior. He didn't shed imaginary blood, folks. When the cat of nine tails ripped the flesh, it wasn't imaginary flesh. That was, that was His body. That blood that was shed was His perfect sinless blood. And when He gave up the ghost and died, it was a real death. And all that was necessitated by the incarnation. But He came to be our, our uh, suffering Savior. But just in case you haven't heard, He didn't stay dead. Amen. He's alive again and glorified. But He had to become man so that He could die in our place. No one else can die for your sins. and You, you can die for your own, but you're going to spend eternity in hell. You don't want to do that. first sermon I heard was called, My Friend Jesus. And the whole sermon was Luke 16, the rich man in hell. Whatever happened to preaching on hell? Amen. Hell's real. It's the most awful reality in the universe. If you die without Christ, you're going to spend forever there. And Jesus died so you wouldn't have to do that. But just as Jesus came into His own and His own received Him not, sometimes people even in Georgia and people in the United States, the gospel comes to them and they receive it not. And they turn their back on Jesus before and there's no plan B when it comes to salvation, it's either Jesus or nothing. Let me point out one final thought. He's our scriptural Savior, our sympathetic Savior. He our, was our suffering Savior. Number four, He is our sufficient Savior. 
So verse 12 says, but as many as received him. Now, aren't you glad that everyone didn't reject him? Amen. Peter didn't. Peter said, thou art the Christ. Uh, Andrew didn't. James and John and Matthew and the woman at the well didn't. She went back into town and said, is not this the Christ? Mary Magdalene didn't. She had seven devils. Jesus cast them out. She was convinced. Nicodemus didn't reject him. Jesus said, you must be born again. He didn't understand, but Jesus was teaching him about the spiritual birth, a new birth that must take place. And Nicodemus believed on him and received him as Savior. Lazarus and Mary and Martha didn't reject him. Zacchaeus up the tree didn't reject Jesus. He received him into his house and into his heart. The maniac of Gadara, man, that's a sad case, isn't it? Man's out there, demon. he's not just demon-possessed, he's got a... He's got a hornet's nest of demons in, his, in that big empty space in his heart where God belonged. Amen? I, just, I, I picture like this hornet's nest with, with uh, hornets coming and going. And I just picture demons and de- all over this man's life. And he's, he's naked and he's in the tombs and he's cutting himself. And he's crying day to night. The most miserable uh, example of someone who is godless and needs God in his life. And here comes Jesus and the man falls down before him. He doesn't reject him. He receives him. And God saved him. The dying thief on the cross didn't reject him. Just, uh, just minutes away from his eternity, hanging on a cross. At first, he mocked Jesus with the rest, but there's something changed in his heart. Isn't that right? He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So I'm just pointing out that, yes, there were great crowds who rejected Jesus, turned their back on Jesus, some very antagonistic, some just lukewarm and apathetic. But there were many others who received him as Savior. I did. Amen. Amen. Have you? Has there been a time when you... Trusted Jesus Christ alone with all your heart as your Savior? Mr. Brother Raz, I've been baptized. No one talking about baptism right now. I'm a Baptist with a capital B. But baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is just a picture of what's already taken place in the heart. It's a symbol. It's not... Tap water and river water doesn't wash away your sins. The blood of Jesus washes away your sins. You get baptized because you got saved, not to get saved. You don't find salvation at the bottom of the tank. Amen. And so, no, it's not of works that we have done, but according to his mercy that he saves us. And, well, Brother Asper, I'm Baptist born and Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. Okay, but have you been born again? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just asking because I, I think that sometimes, I'll give this example. My father, I didn't grow up in church. My dad was raised, uh, his dad was in the Navy too. Any, any Navy people in here? All right, retired maybe, right? Okay. And so my grandfather was in the Navy. They went from California to the Carolinas and back. I mean, just uh, constantly in travel. My, my grandmother dragged my uh, dad and his sisters. He said, I was raised on drugs. She drugged me to church Sunday morning. She drugged me to church Sunday night. She drugged me to church Wednesday night, you know. But at 17, he graduated high school and joined the Navy. And he said, I'm never going to church again. And he didn't. All those years. He'd been baptized. And on the strength of the fact that during a revival meeting, the evangelist preached, invited folks to come forward and make a decision. My my dad at 16 walked the aisle. 
They took him right back and they baptized him. No one ever opened a Bible with him. No one, obviously, we're not trained in how to deal with people about being, how to be saved, yet you have to actually deal with people. Amen. Took him back and baptized him, sent him on his way. My dad went to Vietnam. My dad was in two near fatal car accidents. My dad was retired and totally out of church when I got saved. Uh, my mother got saved. She was what you call a lapsed Catholic. That means she was raised Catholic, but she was no longer participating in the Catholic church, but she wasn't in any church. And so my mom got saved and she got baptized and joined the church. My dad started going to church with her. And I mean, I, I'm already out of, uh, out of high school by this point. And, uh, and he joined the church based on his previous baptism. And he became a good church member, became a deacon, and became the church treasurer. And one Monday, he drove up to the church and he went to the pastor's office and said, Pastor, I don't think I'm saved. He said, why, Jim? He said, well, I got baptized, but I don't remember anyone ever showing me from the Bible. I don't remember ever calling upon Christ or believing in Him with all my heart. And the fact of the matter is that from age 16 to age 40, there was zero spiritual fruit. Nothing. My dad got saved. He got baptized. And as uh, far as I know, they were in church this morning. If they're not, I'll have to chew them out. I'm kidding, but they've been in the same church for over 30 years now. And, and now you see from that point forward, you know what you see? Not perfection, but what you see is a lot of spiritual fruit and a real change. And I, I fear, and I, and I never want to you know, make someone who's saved doubt their salvation. I, I love for people to have full assurance of salvation, don't you? But I also don't want anyone to go to hell from a Baptist church pew. Amen. <laughs> and so it's important that we examine ourselves. But I want you to know that there, He is our sufficient Savior. Yeah. Jesus is everything we need to be saved. Amen. He has 100% of the grace you need to be saved. Yeah. It's not 90% Jesus and 10% baptism or 50% Jesus and 50% the church. No, my friend, if you receive Him... It goes on to say in verse number 13, which are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You can be born again when you receive Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Savior. Isn't that a blessing? And if you have been saved, then you're saved forever. And nothing can change that because He is sufficient forever. So I'm just beholding the glory of the incarnation. If God, if the Word had not become flesh and dwelt among us, we would not have a scriptural Savior. We would not have a sympathetic Savior. We would not have, have had a suffering Savior. And if we didn't have a suffering Savior, there'd be no way that our sins could be forgiven. But we have a sufficient Savior. Because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So is He your Savior tonight? And if He is, are you trusting in Him? Are you bringing your burdens to Him? Are you, are you walking closely with Him? Father, I pray tonight that you'd bless these thoughts. I thank you for the opportunity to speak and just to try to exalt my Savior. And I pray tonight, if someone here is not saved, that today they would understand their desperate need for Christ and that they would turn in repentance and faith to Jesus and be saved. There may be some who have great needs this evening, great hurts, great fears, and uh, have a great need for mercy and grace. And I pray that they would come boldly to the throne and understand that you are sufficient. They can cast all their cares upon you, that you care for them, that you're sufficient for their needs. 
I pray that you bless the invitation time as it is given. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.